Don't Wreck Yourself features words and situations that are not appropriate for young listeners. This show is only for adults and unsupervised juvenile delinquents of exquisite taste and refinement. Each week, Matt and Ryan look into claims they find online, answer your questions, and say bad words! Now your way is the only way, and my way is the only way to Fill the space between a hard place and a rock is all we do But we'll entertain the conversation that leads us to the truth What do we know? A trips to telephones that are no different to you Welcome to Don't Wreck Yourself. My name's Ryan Placetti, and I'm here to disentangle you from the Gordian knot of the Internet's bullshit. And I'm Brad Hafford, archaeologist without a tagline. I've got a YouTube channel called Artifactually Speaking, and today I'm sitting in for Matt. That's good, because Matt doesn't have a tagline either, so he won't feel like you're... So he won't feel like you're stepping into his spotlight. Yeah, I think he said he'd been workshopping one for a year, or... Something like that. Well, you've only had a few minutes. Maybe if you come around for a second episode, you'll, you'll, you'll come fully armed. I think being the man with no tagline is a tagline in itself, and maybe I've stolen that from him. This is getting into some really, really complex issues of ownership, and hold on, I'm going to go pick up a copy of Kant, and I'll get back to you in about like an hour. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophically speaking, I, I think I can't. <laughs> One of the things I'm worried about here is that, you know, you and Matt are very with it, as it were, um, concerning modern and popular culture. And I'm kind of caught in the past, like 4,000 years in the past. So I'm going to rely on you to try to relate this to modern culture. All right. So everything is a Fast and the Furious reference. You need to know that. First first and Fast and Furiously most. Um, (laughs) Aren't there about eight of those? I think there's nine now. I have wow. no idea. I, I've, all, I've, I've literally only seen the first one and commercials for any. all the ensuing episodes. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I think the Fast and the Furious series is basically like a six degrees of Vin Diesel. Um, yeah. And everybody is one link because they've been in a Fast and the Furious movie. So just to give folks a little bit of background about how Brad and I know each other, probably, I guess it was about 11 years ago, Brad hired me a stranger off the street to and that's not how we met we didn't meet on the street i wasn't like working a corner and he pulled up in like a a a beat up chevelle and said hey how much (laughs) and i said i don't know what's an entry-level wage in the archaeological industry yeah about two dollars i think but (laughs) and i was trying to help out a fellow vet man yeah After I graduated from uh, university, my first job was actually at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, working directly for Brad on the Or Digitization Project. You know, we, we talk about, actually, I don't want to reference a good old boys club, but. Uh, well, is that a good old boys club? I mean, I didn't know you were a vet until we were interviewing you. And then I went, oh, that's interesting. What's your MOS? And you told me and I went, hey, I did pretty much the same thing, but a long time before you did. What I find really interesting about that statement is Brad just admitted live on this show that he did not look at my resume prior to interviewing <laughs> me for that position. <laughs> I was trying to show that I wasn't putting too much emphasis on a particular <laughs> network. <laughs> so, yeah, Brad and I were uh, both in the military as signals intelligence analysts. Uh, I was a Korean linguist. I think you were not language specific. No signals, but yeah. <laughs> Then we both, after leaving the military, ended up working in archaeology. Brad did not, however, duck out after a few years to go sell beer, which is why he is an expert and I am an enthusiast. 
Right. Well, I'm still caught in that, whatever that world is, of archaeology and academia, which are both uh, a little weird, but maybe every field is a little weird. The one common thing that I've noticed about every job that I have in every single profession, everybody goes, oh, yeah, we drink a lot around here. <laughs> and so in the military, it's just like, oh, yeah, military is a drinking culture. Then, you know, you get into academia and everybody's got everybody's got a little bottle hidden in their office somewhere or is falling down drunk on the job. Yeah, that's kind of too true, um, especially, well, maybe we all say this, but the generation before me, they all drank like crazy, <laughs> and I feel like we don't drink quite as much, but, <laughs> and I've heard that in England, you if you want to set up an archaeological dig, you first ask, how far away is the nearest pub? <laughs> and the answer is not that far, because that's it's England, true. archaeology and pubs are both everywhere. Yes. I, I transitioned after archaeology into the beer industry, where, of course, people drink a lot. It's part of evaluating a beer. You have to taste the beer in order to evaluate it. And if you taste it four, five, six, seven times a shift, possibly from the same glass, that's okay. It's just like archaeology. You have to taste the dirt to be able to evaluate it. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you determine how do you determine whether something's a, a piece of bone or ceramic? You stick your tongue to it. <laughs> that's what a lot of people say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the theory there is that biological stuff is going to absorb your moisture, whereas a rock's going to be like, hey, I'm a rock, get out of here. <laughs> True, but... There is some pottery that's very porous, so it is possible for some pottery to stick to your tongue, too. Yeah. I invited Brad on the show because I wanted to cram as many archaeologically related topics into a single episode as I could in order to spare Matt the future and dignity of sitting there while I talk about archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> but our first topic actually has to do with the identification of ancient objects. There is a story that's been kind of making the rounds lately on a lot of mainstream media sites, which means from a fact-checking standpoint, we're starting off in a pretty good position. Hopefully. So the story here is that in 2018, a woman named Laura Young purchased from a thrift shop in Austin, Texas for $34.99 a marble bust. Bargain. And she knew it was she knew it had to be ancient because there were no barbecue sauce fingerprints on it. <laughs> and it's under thirty five dollars and it's under thirty five dollars <laughs> upon examining it. She's she's an artist, so she's familiar with art. And she said, this does not look like a modern reproduction of an ancient bust, nor does it look like a modern bust. So she embarked on a journey to uncover the origins and was able to determine by collaborating with experts like Brad. Not Brad specifically. Brad's like, no, not me. Well, hey, it's Roman. <laughs> this is modern when I think about it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she went and she confirmed with, you know, art historians that this was, in fact, an ancient piece. And they were able to identify it as an object that went missing in the late 1940s, probably the late 1940s during World War II or immediately thereafter. It had been housed in a German historical site exploring, I guess, the life and lifestyle of Pompey the Great, who was famously the loser in a civil war against Julius Caesar. Yeah. Go first triumvirate <laughs> for all you <laughs> history nerds. <laughs> well, <laughs> this thing, I think it turned out it's supposed to be the son of Pompey the Great, right? Isn't it uh, Sextus Pompey? They suspect that that is the case. Presumably after his father was murdered brutally by the agents, uh, by agents of Julius Caesar, he fell into line. <laughs> yeah. Are you on Team Caesar or uh, Pompey or Crassus? <laughs> Honestly, the only person who seems to make out in this situation is Crassus, because to my knowledge, he was not assassinated. 
Right. There's two things that I find really interesting about it. First of all, the whole idea of, well, looting antiquities and the illegal trade in them. And then where do things go when you repatriate them? Who really owns it? So this object would have been placed into storage during the Second World War and then removed presumably either by an American or somebody who traded it to an American Mm -hmm. during the war, during the occupation period. I think the bigger question, too, is, okay, it was in Germany in 1840, I think we know. They built this Pompeianum, it's called, and they displayed it with replicas as well as regular objects or real objects. And, okay, fine. So where did it come from originally? This is Roman. Did it come from Italy? Should it go back to Italy? I I don't know. He was the son of the losing side of that civil war against Caesar. Was he allowed to live in Italy? Were, were Were the children of Pompey relegated to the provinces? Sure. And the Roman Empire was all over the place, right? So I guess if a statue was erected in Germany, then it belongs in Germany, even if it's Roman, because that's part of their history. But it's part of everybody's history. And I guess... If we go the extreme and say everything that was ever in the modern country of Egypt needs to be in Egypt, and if you want to see it, you've got to go to Egypt, that seems a bit harsh or too severe, because if I hadn't been allowed to go to museums when I was young, I wouldn't be interested in the ancient world. Well, then I guess the the next question is, is there value in being interested in the ancient world? And the answer is obviously no, Brad. Well, I think there is. (laughs) Well, I can see, you know, okay, in Texas... I don't know that there's that much culture. (laughs) 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 I know that you are jaded as a, and this might be telling too many of Brad's secrets. I know that Brad is from Texas. (laughs) Well, I was born there. Am I from there? I guess. But I could just imagine someone sort of like the Texas version of Indiana Jones, you know, picking up this marble head and saying, this belongs in a thrift store. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, your thrift store finds are bigger in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and in, Exactly. But it's going to, well, it's in the San Antonio Museum now, apparently, and it's going to go back to Germany. And eventually, you know, it'll be in a museum there. But what do you think is the oldest museum in the world? Gosh, that, that, that's such a complicated question as far it as is. what constitutes a museum. Uh, well, I'm going to put an early limit on it and say 600 B.C., um, that, hmm. that's just kind of a, that's just kind of a ballpark based on, based on the existence of the word muse. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be right. When we think of a modern museum though, I guess the one that people, if you were to Google it, you'd probably get the Capitoline Museum in Rome. You know, they can trace their history back to 1471, I think. Yeah. And, but that's just because they had a collection of things that was given by Pope Sixtus IV. And is that a museum? Is a collection a museum? Or do you have to put them on display so you see them, I guess? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think a collection, as long as, and the thing is, there there are public museums and private museums. So I think as long as something is displayed for its informational or cultural value, that would context a museum, regardless of how many people have access to it. Yeah, I guess that's true. But if I did have, um, I don't know, a collection in my room and I invited you over to see it. Now, was that my museum and you got to see my Lego or whatever? Um, Sorry, I had a I'm workshopping a joke for this. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those is a taco, a sandwich type questions. It's just like 
as far as what a museum is, we tend to think of museum as a place where we are curating artifacts, but there's geological museums too. I guess so, but you're probably ruining my whole segment here, but because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not arguing that any collection could make a museum. You can have, yeah. and there are things like pencil museum and carrot museum and things like this, you know. Can you have a museum for things that don't exist yet? Uh, well, you can do anything in the virtual world, so maybe. Uh, or just leave a blank space and say, this to be filled whenever it's invented. <laughs> so, so anything could be a museum, I suppose. But I think with the modern conception, it is the idea of collecting them together and maybe <clears throat> arranging them for display and maybe putting information like labels or whatever so people understand. them. Many people would put the earliest museum in about the 6th century BCE at Ur. And this is a site that I'm pretty familiar with. I've been excavating there since 2015, and I have been studying it for about 25 years. So it was excavated back in the 1920s and 30s by Sir Leonard Woolley. I'm familiar with his work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so to put my experience with Aura in context, I worked on the Aura digitization project for two and a half years with Brad, easily slightly less than 10% as knowledgeable as him. <laughs> Well, you were entering a lot of data, so you probably did see a lot of this stuff come through. But is it a museum? Well, maybe it is. It's been interpreted that way by a whole lot of people, and it's really Woolley's fault because he did say it was a museum, so I can't blame <laughs> the modern folks for saying, look, it's a museum. But Woolley was known to uh, exaggerate it, but only in his public presence. When he was trying to get attention for his work and maybe raise funds, this is what we all do, right? We we go with the sensational, maybe. I, I don't think that's that uncommon, especially when you start getting into things like science journalism. Like, it's very common for a peer-reviewed article to filter into mainstream journalism. You know, you might have a, a very in-depth, complex medical article based on a statistically valid sampling. You know, they've done a double-blind test. And then the news article you get is, Doctors say you should drink three glasses of wine and one and eat one piece of chocolate every day. Exactly. And this is always going to happen. And so I shouldn't complain when some of these things make people interested in the ancient world. You know, Willie said this was the Neo-Babylonian princess Enigal Nana who was running the museum. So what did the Babylonian princess Inagata Davida <laughs> have collected there? Well... Uh, this was pretty early in the excavations, 1925. He comes down on this Neo-Babylonian level, which is late as far as Ur is concerned, because it is abandoned somewhere between 500 and 300 BCE. So this is 550 BCE, right on the okay. top of the mound. A lot of things eroded. But he starts finding older objects. So at the top of this mound, he came up on the remains of a building in pretty bad shape. And he found objects that were older than that level. So he said... Uh, we must needs conclude that the other objects found here, whose presence altogether in a Neo-Babylonian room it would be impossible to explain otherwise, are the remains of a museum of local antiquities. So he does say it right out there. These things are too old for that level. They must have been gathered and placed here as a museum. I was unaware of this idea that Or contains the oldest museum. So what sort of objects were being found in this room that he was correlating it to the earlier period or the need to hold on to these objects? Well, they're almost all inscribed pieces. So people were finding things with written cuneiform and they could still kind of read it. And they went, well, that's interesting, right? This is from an older king because often it will have the name Shulgi or something, you know, from the Ur-3 period, which was much 
longer before the Neo-Babylonian. Right. And the Neo-Babylonians, particularly Nabonidus, who was the father of Inigalda, Inigaldi Inigalda Davida, <laughs> was very interested in the ancient past because partly it's a way to legitimize your rule. I'm king and I'm part of a long line of great kings. And here I can show all these ones back behind and I need to rebuild their great works because I'm just as great as them. So he was definitely interested in it. Um, people call him the first archaeologist. I don't know if that's really true, but he did look for some of the older things and probably collect them and put them in this. I think that it's a series of storerooms. Now, that collection then, is it a museum? Well, uh, one of the main reasons Woolley said it was because one of the objects he found, he called a museum label. And it was a clay cylinder that had inscriptions on it which were copies of older inscriptions. Okay. And at the very end, it said, the priest of Ur, Nabushun Edina, I think his name was, has copied these down for the admiration of men. And that sounds like maybe they're displaying them. But I don't think this is a museum label. They often copied things down. That's how you learn to write, by copying older things. You said this was on a cylinder? Uh, yeah, a fairly small cylinder of clay where he had inscribed older brick inscriptions and statue dedications and then ended with that for the admiration of men. It's interesting, but I could run around, let's say I'm a novice scribe, and if I'm if I'm running around and, and pulling a bunch of... And I, I think we see this as kind of a modern phenomenon also, where people go out and they'll buy like a book of quotes. That doesn't necessarily mean it's for public consumption. It might be for the consumption of an individual, and, what, and I think we've already determined... Or at least we've we put out there the possibility that you might not consider something a museum unless it is being showcased, prepared by one person to be showcased to another. Right. And I suppose it could have been. There is a chance. In fact, everything I want to talk to about today has its basis, in fact. And we're really just quibbling over how far can we take that idea. Um, the main thing is that even Woolley, you know, said in his popular books, he said, and I found this. And it was right next to this label. And, you know, he's trying to make it really sound like they're all in one room and there's all these objects. Yeah. So much more modern articles say that they have these things arranged and displayed and that uh, Enigaldi Nana was the curator of this museum and she was carefully laying them out. But they weren't found in close context. I went back to the field notes and there are at least three rooms, probably five rooms across which these few objects are scattered. And some of them are school tablets. So they've said it's also a school and they were teaching. Well, they probably were because that's how you learned to write. You copied older inscriptions. Right. But was Inigaldi Nana the curator and the teacher and the headmistress and whatever else of all of this? Well, you know, she was a very important person at Ur. She was the high priestess. And that was really the most powerful position you could hold apart from king. You represented the god of Ur, who was the moon god, Nana. I don't want to say she couldn't do all this stuff because it's important to look at women's history or women's effect on history. They had a huge impact, but they weren't recorded as well. All yeah. the, maybe she was putting it all together so that one day we could digitize it for the Or Digitization Project. Yeah, maybe so. If we're going to summarize this claim, it's that the site of Or contains the world's oldest known museum. And we are calling that... Well, that's what the claim is. And I say maybe. <laughs> but I don't think it's as cut and dried as most people want to believe. There were some yeah. objects found kind of spread out, somewhat close proximity, different ages. I don't know that they were displayed. They were 
probably studied and stored. And if that makes a museum, okay, it's a museum. All right. I can accept that. Archaeology is almost, especially when you're talking about physical objects that aren't supported with a written documentation. A lot of times the context that we have for an object is the most important determiner of how we interpret that object as as part of its own world. And if the closest context that we have is something modern, then any ancient context supersedes that, in my opinion. So we can say, was that the first museum? And then somebody back then would say, well, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know what a museum is. I just have all this old stuff in a room that I'm showing to people. Yeah. The most important thing is for us to be able to relate to it. And so, of course, we're going to bring our modern baggage onto the words that we slap on there. But if it helps us to go, oh, okay, ancient people were a lot like us. Yeah. I'm all for it. That's great. And I I think what you said before, as far as like the lineage of kings in terms of, you know, the origin of my current authority is built on the bedrock of this ancient authority that everybody understands and respects, Mm -hmm. which... You know, we see that today. You know, if you look at the iconography of modern currency, currency contains a lot of symbolism that is important to states, especially states trying to establish their own sovereignty or their own. Yeah, it's something that fascinates me a lot. And I study kind of the history of currency. So naturally, I'm going to look at modern stuff as well. And I try to look at it pretty closely. There's a reason American currency has the phrase e pluribus unum on there. Our our national symbols are eagles. And then if you look at the seal of the president, you'll see things like Fasquez, which are, you know, just a small axe wrapped in a bundle of reeds, which is a symbol of Roman rule, which was also, you know, drawn on by Mussolini and the fascist Mm -hmm. movement. And that's how you end up with fascists are are literally named after Mm -hmm. named after Fasquez, which were symbols of Roman imperial might. Yeah, but I think it um, ultimately goes to something like truth or liberty. I can't remember what the real meaning of it is. It got kind of warped. And when you say fascist, it takes on a very different meaning. But my point is like both sides of the war are hearkening back to and drawing legitimacy from symbols of Roman imperial might. Yeah, in general, that's true. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about money too. We should talk about someday, but not right now. But speaking of money, one of the main reasons I brought you on the show as an expert is because there is a figure who emerges as a result of the ore excavations who has, in this age of connectivity, reemerged as a meme figure in internet culture, and that is, of course, Ian Asser, the ancient copper trader. Exactly. He's gotten something of a bad rap, I think, but um, maybe he deserves it, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about. The S in his name is actually a character called Sade, and it's pronounced with a T-S, so it's A-A-Nazir, but he's not a Nazi. I don't. That was long before <laughs> no. the Nazis. No, uh, maybe the Nazis were hearkening back to him. Uh, <laughs> drawing authority from his corrupt regime of uh, copper ingot swapping. Ian Natzer is a figure that is attested to in clay tablets discovered at presumably his own home in which a dissatisfied business uh, associate is lambasting the quality of his copper ingots. Well, yeah, that's the main thing that people keyed on is that we do have a complaint letter. It's a pretty long one, really. It comes from a guy named Nani, written to a Nazir. And it says, you uh, gave me bad copper, basically. I sent my messengers to get it, and you were mean to them, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to go across foreign territory. I think the word literally is enemy territory. But enemy and foreign were largely the same word. So as as was the custom at the time. Uh Uh-huh. 
So it does sound like he treated this guy pretty badly. But of course, that's that letter we're getting is only that guy's side of the story. You know, we don't hear a announcer's story. I've worked extensively in customer service, in retail and business to business sales. And I can tell you that there are nannies out there everywhere. <laughs> I like to say that there are people out there in this world where the best part of their day is being the worst part of somebody else's. Hmm. This could be that sort of situation with Nani. Yeah. Hey, Nani, Nani, I guess. And a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Well, there are other complaint tablets, though, so we can't let Aya Natsir off the hook yet. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few in there. There's about five that we can definitely say are. But we don't know exactly how many letters were in his archives. There well, were maybe 18 found in the house, but the records don't show us exact numbers. So if five of 18 are complaints yeah. and the others are not, well, what's his rating? It's pretty bad. It's something like 74% acceptance. That's that's still three and a half stars. Well, yeah. But if you like, go on eBay, somebody with a 98%, you're like, I'm not buying from them. If this is a classic five-star review, by the way, on whatever your podcatcher of choice is, go ahead and find Don't Wreck Yourself, rate us five stars, or the maximum number of stars allowed. In this case, the maximum number of stars allowed for Ian Atzer would be three and a half. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> So was he, though, here's the problem. Some of the more modern articles, again, they're picking up on this idea, and they say he was the worst businessman in the ancient world. Wow, that's a, quite a statement there. What are you comparing with? How many businessmen do we have from the ancient world right? <laughs> that we know a lot about? The answer is probably not many. <laughs> exactly. And how ancient do you go? I mean, certainly from Mesopotamia. We, one of the great things about Ur is that digging those private houses, you do sometimes find their archives. There are letters from or to these people. And so you can identify the names of these ancient folks. And it's great because you're trying to learn about those people. And here you are in the house and you can put a name to that house. And that's what Willie did with Ayanatsu. There were a lot of these tablets that were addressed to him. That was his house. I'm assuming as he is a copper trader that he would be middle class, some, some sort of merchant class yeah, within the society. Like so he probably would have had servants and agents and he would have been considered a wealthy person at the time. Yes, I believe so. There is a debate on whether or not a middle class existed, but if it did, I think he would certainly count uh, as such a thing. So there's one tablet in his archives that talks about 18 and a half metric tons of copper being imported from Dilmun, which is the island of Bahrain, and the copper ultimately comes from Magan, which is Oman. So it's coming up the Gulf and being brought into Ur, and he deals in it. He's probably bringing in most for the palace or temples, because at this volume, who's going to be able to use that kind of material? Right. But he probably does do some personal business as well, and his creditors start to get mad. He's probably spending a lot of time in Bahrain, and they're saying, you haven't sent the copper yet, but he's dealing in such major quantities, he's got to send these boats up. So I don't know that I want to be an Aenatzer apologist, I'm perfectly willing to go out on that ledge for Ian Otzer because I work in an industry that is absolutely getting decimated by supply chain issues. So I can understand, you know, the, maybe the copper coming in isn't the copper that he wants, maybe not in the quantity that he wants, but he's doing the best that he can. And Nani needs to just relax, take a deep breath and recognize that there are existential factors in the marketplace that are determining the quality of Mr. Notzer's copper. Yeah, I think that's something we can relate to today because <laughs> our supply chain is kind of kinked up at the moment. You know, it's hard to get things around. And imagine what it was like trying to get things from a long way away 
back then, you know? Yeah. And just think at this point, the wheel had just been invented. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> not quite, but. <laughs> Can you imagine how fortunate he felt? Living in such technologically advanced times. In my grandfather's day, we used to have to put these things on skids and drag them across the desert. <laughs> I think we don't know enough to really judge Ayanatsar because there are these memes that show him as the Giga Chad or something, just pushing people around, you know, and I can do this because I'm in control and you have to buy my copper or take it or leave it. I think he does say that in one of his... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least that's what Nani says. You, I sent my messenger and you told him, hey, here's some copper, take it or leave it. I don't care. I mean, that is often uh, the response when you're dealing with businesses. If you don't like Mr. Notzer's copper, you can yeah. go down the street and you can talk to his competition. Nani says, I gave a thousand kilos of copper to the palace on your behalf. You know, so he's dealing in massive quantities, too. Ian Notzer does get kind of a bad rap, but he also serves a function in our modern society. And it's kind of neat. Yeah. Like, even though he's being presented out of context, he's actually providing a function, even if that function is just making people laugh. Right. But the notion of Ian Atzer yeah. as the Giga Chad or, mm. you know, just an unsavory modern businessman is kind of nice. It, it humanizes them and it puts them in a human context that we can understand. And it raises interest in the ancient world, which I right. think we can both appreciate. It's connecting us to the ancient. And I think that is a great thing. But, you know, they do say things like he kept the tablets around in order to decorate his walls and laugh at all the people who, you know, were complaining. <laughs> and I don't know where you get that because <laughs> they're found in his house, but you kept your archives for a number of reasons, partly to contest if someone does take you to court. They actually did have, you know. This is this is the equivalent of us raiding his filing cabinet. Yeah. Not, his, not necessarily his art collection. I found that, you know, there have been all these memes somehow. Ayanatsar went viral, which is fine. That's kind of cool. Uh, and at some point, if I come back on, we'll have to talk about Shulok the fart house demon. <laughs> That's a that's a that's a teaser for our next Dr. Brad episode. Jeez. Exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brad. Is there a re is there a reason we did all the prep for this episode and you didn't lead with the fart house demon? Because I need you to ask me back on and we can talk about that later. <laughs> that final finally an antiquities episode that we can bring we can bring Matt back for. <laughs> yeah, right. He will like that. He's like dick and fart jokes. I don't care how old it is. Those are timeless. <laughs> Right. There's plenty of other things we can talk about. There are lots of <laughs> penis sculptures and, uh, you know, pornographic images on clay and things like this that nobody usually talks about. And Brad's here talking about copper ingots. What are we yeah, even exactly. doing? <laughs> well, um, we were saying that we don't have many merchants or people like Ayanatsar to compare. But I do have one other I want to mention. And his name is M.D. Elum. And he's actually uh, from about 1900 BCE, so a little bit earlier than Ayanatsar. And he's working from Asur to Karim Khanesh. So this is northern Iraq into the middle of Turkey. Okay. Some 1,200 kilometers they've got to travel. And he's sending caravans of donkeys carrying textiles and tin. And okay. one, one caravan can be 100 donkeys. And each donkey had a standard weight unit that it would be carrying. So this is literally the ancient ass load. <laughs> the the word anshe kipshum so anshe is is donkey or ass and kipshum is the loaded state and it's about 90 kilograms that they will carry over this distance 
So, so this guy's this guy's ass could handle ninety kilos exactly, and he's shipping a whole bunch of asses into this <laughs> distance. And the great thing is that we've got lots of his records as well, and we can estimate his net worth or his liquid assets. The amount he had to build a new caravan was about a hundred kilos of silver. Now, if we took spot price today, that's only about seventy one thousand dollars. I'd like to have that land in my lap right now, but. It's not much when you compare it to yearly. I mean, there are lots of people who earn that money yeah. now in a year. But at the time, a year's wage was only about 100 grams of silver. So this guy had a thousand years pay that he could just draw from. Oh, wow. So he's the first recorded millionaire, really. When you calculate, even if we calculate at poverty level right now, it's over a million dollars for a thousand years of pay. Yeah. So the, the other thing that people have to understand when you talk about like the modern value of silver is that we have modern mining techniques and we have the, you know, the total sum of surviving silver that has ever been that has ever been taken out of the ground affecting supply and demand. Yep. There is easily way more silver now, more easily extracted and more easily transported mm -hmm. than that little corner of Iraq, Turkey, you know, that, that, that Mesopotamia to Anatolia route. And in Assyria, they actually use silver as a currency standard. It actually did circulate, really. And all the accounts were kept in silver, but they didn't have silver. So they went to the mountains in Anatolia, where it was mined, to get silver for a lot less. So this was a profit motive. They were able to trade all of their stuff, tin in particular, because tin is needed for bronze. And right. this is the Bronze Age. If you don't have tin, who the fuck are you? Exactly. It's like, I guess we're in the <laughs> electronic age and we need electronics, right? We're over here in the bronze age. You're over there in the copper age. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Enjoy your calcolithic period. <laughs> yeah. So he and there's a whole big group of merchants that do this, but he's just one we know a lot about. And so some of his texts and other ones that are coming from these merchants tell us that they are smuggling sometimes because they say, take a different route because they're starting to ask for tolls as you move into this particular area. So go the more treacherous route. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just like when businesses relocate to tax havens today. Yeah, exactly. Whether it be Elon Musk moving from California to Texas, having benefited for years from California's green energy tax, uh, tax rebates and, and tax breaks, to move to Texas, where his established company would pay less taxes. And where he might find a Roman head, apparently, if we want to go back yeah. to the top of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's also evidence of things like bribery and price gouging or profiteering and usury and all sorts of things. It's proto-capitalism at its best, I think. You know? Yeah. They, they thought they were at peak capitalism because they were on top of a mountain talking about yeah. it. But here we are now. <laughs> yeah. So is this guy the ancient version of Elon Musk? So I, I, I think that's an interesting question. I think it's even more interesting when you put him up against Ian Atzer. This guy hasn't gone viral yet, but right. what do you think his ancient Yelp review score would be? I think it would be kind of high. <laughs> well, I guess um, it, there are some other interesting things. He stayed mostly in Turkey and he sent letters back to his home in Asur and it was his wife and daughter who ran the business there. So they were business people too. And one of the letters, I don't know if it's from him, but it's someone like him says, tell your brother he's lazy. And he just sits around and he eats bread and drinks beer. Get him to work. <laughs> you know what? I, the character I empathize most with, this, uh, most with in this story is uh, the beer and bread eating brother. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say he was the ancient Elon Musk. He might have invested in new technologies. And 
I was cruising Reddit r slash conspiracy the other day, and I came across this thing called the Baghdad Battery. <laughs> so this was posted by Cute Banana Muffin uh, about two years ago, but this is clearly a copy paste of somebody named Larry Brian Radka, who wants everybody to know about these ancient Baghdad batteries. Can you explain the the archaeological context, the origin of these so-called Baghdad batteries? Well, like a lot of these things that are found in museums, we don't have good records of their actual excavation because they were found a long time ago. These were probably found in the 1920s. When the first article was written about them, it was 1938, I believe, and they had been uh, spotted in the museum in Iraq, in Baghdad, and some guy saw them and thought, hey, these could have been batteries. And so he wrote about them. So four of them were found in a grave near Baghdad. It was Parthian period. So we're talking second century BCE. So knowing what we know now uh, from a modern scientific standpoint, everyone knows that if a dead body gets struck by lightning, it comes back to life. Is there a possibility that they were trying to galvanize this body back to life? (laughs) I hadn't heard that one. I think now you've started a new uh, meme or something. Everything I know about science, I learned from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> exactly. And this, this was an ancient defibrillator. No. <laughs> the thing with this is, it is a jar with a copper cylinder inside, and then one of them had an iron rod kind of in that. They're very small, though. And if you filled that copper cylinder with something like vinegar, lemon juice or something, it would make a weak charge. It could make half a volt, maybe one volt. Yeah, so the the idea here is that when you have two dissimilar metals uh, immersed in an electrolyte and charge would be formed as a as a result of the chemical reaction that takes place inside of this acid. Yeah. And so this thing it actually could have worked, but why? And where how would you use it? You know, there there aren't really wires in here. Some people claim that they found wires with it. No, they didn't really. No. And there aren't many others like it anywhere. There are a few, but very few. So if it were a battery and it caught on, wouldn't you find lots of them? I mean, people start to smelt copper and add tin. So then we start finding bronze because, hey, this was a great idea. It worked. Uh, So and that's the thing. Like a lot of things get invented or made in the context of a civilization that don't even have purpose. This could be a novelty item. You know, there's things that we deal with. You know, think about all the tchotchkes you get at the dollar store. Like that stuff doesn't really have a purpose, like party favors, you know? Maybe they just didn't know how to apply this. So if it were a battery, then maybe near this period too, I think the first technically steam engine was invented in Greece. Yeah. And they just didn't uh, harness it to anything. You know, it was just, it spun around a bit and they went, okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't develop a practical application. Yeah. So the, the first hypothesis for how these batteries would have been used is as part of an electroplating process. So- Electroplating is basically, it's capitalizing on that idea of having two dissimilar metals immersed in an electrolyte solution, which allows the the material from one of those metals to be migrated, the electricity essentially acting as a catalyst, which would cause it to affix itself to the surface of the other metal. And that's how you'd get, like nowadays, you might use that to gold plate or silver plate or chrome plate something you might use and you might use an electroplating process. Yeah, and if they used it for that, then that would be great. And wouldn't a lot of people start using that because it's a good application? And uh, we don't really have anything that we can prove was electroplated, you know, either. Any objects, there are some that do have a thin coating, but 
can't prove that that was done with an electric current. Yeah, and they they have other methods that were available to them. So where this stuff gets, so I, I think we can agree that these so-called Baghdad batteries exist. They may have actually been used as a storage for potential electrical p- power, but this Reddit thread takes things a step further to suggest that not only was this technology in existence, but it was ex- it existed to such an extent that they were able to power electrical lights. Right. See, I would call these leaps of logic. So, you know, you're, you're jumping because I think at one point it says, so now that we know they had batteries, well, we don't really know that yet. We know it's a possibility, but it's fairly unlikely, I think. I, and I'll tell you why here in a second. But if you then jump to saying, therefore, they had electric lights because it's hard to see in those tombs in Egypt. So you needed a light. Well, yes, you did. But they had oil lamps. And then he says, yeah, but there's no burning on the walls. Well, we don't see much in some cases. In other cases, we do. And it depends on what kind of oil you're burning, whether you're going to get a lot of soot. You know, in the in the tombs where they did find it, they said, well, that's obviously grave robbers. An unspoiled oh, right. tomb wouldn't have that. You know, I think the thing that people need to keep in mind when you're talking about ancient tombs, these are being created for wealthy and powerful individuals. They were a significant investment of labor and resources. And it stands to reason that if you spent all the time working on like the elaborate artistic decorations that go into a tomb, that you might take the time to scrub the sooty stains off of the ceiling when you're done. Yeah. When you're presenting the final product of your years of work to the person who has financed it, you want to present that in the best possible light. And the best possible light in that situation may be a series of mirrors reflecting sunlight in there so that you can show them that you've erased all the oil stains off the walls. But maybe they were dead when they were taken in there. They, you know, they wouldn't know. <laughs> There's a lot of leaps of faith that kind of go into this notion of an ancient electrical grid. Exactly. And I noticed one other thing about the author. It says he's also written a book that's called The Historical Evidence for Unicorns. Well. Not, only, not only batteries existed, but unicorns did too. Maybe they were battery-powered unicorns. <laughs> and, uh... So it cites a lot of ancient texts that provide descriptions of things that could be interpreted as uh, not, well, I'll say non-traditional light sources, basically light sources that are not combustible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we're not dealing with burning oil, burning wood, that sort of thing. But just because they don't say that they're burning oil or they don't say that they're burning wood doesn't mean that those aren't the sources of those lights. Right. And there is the representation at Dendera, which is people interpret as a, an image, a drawing of a light bulb, but it's probably a plant, but it does look like it has a filament in it. So if it were a light bulb, did they make these vacuum tubes like we do and put a filament in it? And why don't we find any evidence of the actual object? Yeah. And the explanation that they offer for that is that these this technology would have been used by a priestly class describing the magic as being worked by a divine figure. Not only do they say this technology existed, but of course we don't have evidence of it because they were keeping it secret. So they were able to hide all remains of any light bulb? They, they destroyed yeah. them all or something? So we don't have the remains of the light bulbs. We don't have the remains of the conductors that would have been required to run the electricity to the filaments. And the batteries we have are insufficient to explain ancient descriptions of spotlights or area lighting sufficient to. So you're off of that half volt to half to one volt charge, which is about uh, a third to two thirds of, uh, you know, a double A battery. The the scale for the power being generated just does not work with the technology that we're showing in this 
in in this small artifact. Even to electroplate, I think they said you would need, you know, six or eight of these things in sequence. And all they found in the grave, of course, were four, and several of those were broken. And one of the records does show that uh, at least two or three of these um, had some sort of papyrus-like material inside that copper cylinder. And to me, that says, well, then why? Uh, I think the best explanation is that they were actually things like prayers for the dead that were wrapped up, rolled around, stuck into these things, sealed in so that it was a sacred object. I know it's a cop-out. Archaeologists, when they can't uh, explain something, they say, it was ritual. <laughs> yeah, cult alter- <laughs> cult purposes. <laughs> but this, it doesn't have to be a battery. It could be. So I want us to remember that ancient people were smart, just like us. They were pushing their envelope. It's just that there was a smaller known world and they didn't have as much technology to build on, but they still tried to push that as much as they could. And there were people who were inventive. And there were also people who were content to just wake up and farm and get married and have kids and then die, you know? And Those people still exist today and they do not wear wear masks at your Denny's. (laughs) (laughs) So I I did find one other possible explanation outside of the uh, electroplating, which I thought was interesting. And this was proposed in the early 90s in in an academic paper, basically stating that if these are in fact batteries that are capable of generating an electrical charge, then the purpose might've been medical, providing cutaneous stimulation and so basically the idea is like you're running an electrical current through your body in order to have a desired effect. There are examples in ancient texts describing the use of fish that are capable of an electrical charge for medical purposes. So this is a, uh, and you know, I didn't do the translation myself, but this is Scribonius Largus, which is the Best name for an ancient scribe, which is Big Scribe. <laughs> yeah, like the Giga Chad, the Giga Scribe. <laughs> uh, but he was the physician to the Roman Emperor Claudius, and he wrote uh, For any sort of uh, podagria or foot gout, when the pain comes on, it is good for one to put a live black torpedo fish under his feet while standing on a beach. Uh, and then in parentheses, it says, Not dry, but one which, uh, which the sea washes until he feels that his whole foot and shank are numb just up to the knees. This will be both a relief for the current pain and alleviate future recurrences. So basically using electrostimulation in order to numb numb the pain brought on by gout. The idea here is that a medical practitioner living in Mesopotamia would not have access to any fish species that provide this sensation. So... Someone noting the charge, cre- the, the minor charge created when you have dissimilar metals immersed in an electrolyte like vinegar, which is not an uncommon solution at the time, mm-hmm. like vinegar or lemon juice or. Did they have lemons back then? It uh, seems it seems unlikely uh, because lemons, lemons are a hybrid of a bitter orange and a lime. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of people know lemons are hybrids. So if this is the one thing you learned today, huh. I can't believe I brought on Brad just so you could learn about lemons. But <laughs> when life hands you lemons, make a battery. So the idea here is that somebody noting the similar phenomenon created by, you know, touching this battery, you know, holding this one volt battery to your tongue and stepping on a torpedo fish. They might have made an, a medical application based on that. Sure. The Victorians did that, too. Not long after, you know, electricity made it bigger in the 19th century. They started inventing these things where you would just grab on two electric <laughs> nodes, basically. And uh, for st- whatever, stimulation for medical purposes, they thought it could do all sorts of things, cure you 
when in fact it probably did more harm than good. But, you know, you know, when you go to like a children's museum and they're, they're showing you electricity and they have the metal ball that you touch and it makes your hair stand up on end. Mm-hmm. What is the practical application of that from a scientific standpoint? There isn't one. It's just a novelty. So it's entirely possible that if these batteries did exist and that's what they were used for, they could have just been a novelty. Yeah. Just the guy sitting on the couch, eating bread and drinking beer and touching his tongue to a battery going, whoa. (laughs) So as far as electroplating and medical stuff goes, maybe I think that there are better explanations like the one that Brad offered. Were they small versions of power sources used in monumental lighting projects in in ancient Egypt and the Near East? I'm going to say probably not. No, right. I think it's fitting that we uh, we end up on this lighting question in an episode where we've talked about the luminaries of the ancient world. But who will future generations look back on our age with and say that was a good egg or that was a terrible merchant? Presumably one of those people would have to be Rick Reynolds, who is known in our times for his incredible generosity and allowing us the use of his song United from the album Portals in Progress which you can find on our various marketplaces like Amazon, iTunes, and Spotify. You can also find him at Rick Reynolds on Instagram. And I believe, Brad, you also have uh, a show that you'd like to tell our audience about. Well, Artifactually Speaking is a YouTube channel where I talk about history, one artifact at a time, basically. But an artifact can be anything, so I'm looking at fairly recent things as well as fairly old things, and particularly examining modern currency pretty closely. If you want to learn more about the history of modern currency and the history of historical objects, uh, go to YouTube, search for Artifactually Speaking. Uh, Do you have any social media uh, attached to that? Not right now. We're going to be putting it together. So um, Artifact Speak or Artifactually Speaking, I'm sure that we will be on various portals. So you, you can find Artifactually Speaking on YouTube and you can also find our show, Don't Wreck Yourself, on various internet platforms. You'll find us at WreckYourPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and also Gmail, where we are WreckYourPod at gmail.com. You can send us your topic suggestions, questions, comments, concerns. And if anybody wants to correct Brad about his knowledge of the ancient world, you can feel free to reach out to me there. I will QC it. And if there is a legitimate complaint, I will pass it on to Brad. If you're just being a nani, I'll throw it in the trash. All right, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, So if between now and when next we meet, you find yourself looking askance at the tonnage of copper ingots just delivered to your small trading post, wondering whether you got the purest copper available on the market and you don't have time to scientifically check the purity, we encourage you to check yourself. Don't wreck yourself. We are united, but we're so far apart. Do we change? Do we are, but we won't. Oh.